Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. This week, we're joined with the wonderful Patricia Vieira, and um, she's going to be sharing some of her work with us. I'm so excited. Um, welcome, Patricia. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I'm really glad to to talk to Kate and to share some of my you know, thoughts, impressions, connections to uh, to plants. Awesome. We're so excited to hear them. <laughs> and I was wondering if you could start by introducing yourself. Sure. My name is Patricia Vieira. I am originally from Portugal. I did most of my academic career in the U.S. I was a professor at Georgetown University until recently. My work tends to focus on the interrelation between social issues and literature and the arts, broadly understood. And in the past few years, I have turned to the so-called environmental humanities. I've worked a lot on ecocriticism, readings of literature, of cinema through an environmental lens, so to speak. And I have moved back to my home country a couple of years ago to head the project on cultural productions about the Amazon River Basin. And that's what I'm doing right now. This is a project that is at the University of Coimbra in Portugal. It's funded by the European Union. And I work with a team of scholars, uh, historians, anthropologists, and, and so on. And basically, we look at how uh, cultural productions from the Amazon River Basin interact with, reflect upon the communities of the region and their connections to, to animals and to plants. That sounds fascinating. And how exciting that it's like interdisciplinary, that you have lots of different people looking at situations from so many different like methodologies. Yeah, I mean, it had to be because the Amazon is such a rich natural and cultural environment that I think one discipline wouldn't do justice to to the wealth of, of knowledge and, and the forms of existence that uh, inhabit the region. So I think you could only do this with an interdisciplinary team. Before we get more into your work, I was wondering, um, this is a question we ask a lot of people on the podcast, and it can be a challenging question, um, but what is your favorite plant and why? Well, that's that's a really interesting question, and I was reflecting uh, upon about this question, and I came to the conclusion that I don't really have one favorite plant, but there are a few plants that have played an important role uh, in my life at different points and, and for different re reasons. And I'm just going to share one example, uh, which is the olive tree. It's a plant that is very present in the Portuguese landscape. And it's also, of course, the source of olive oil, uh, which is the central part of, of my diet. And so when my when my son turned one, I planted an olive tree in the entrance to, to my house. Uh, it was really tiny at the time, and it looked like it was not going to survive the year. And my son's now seven, and the tree has been with us now for six years, and it grew to be really tall and large. And every year in the fall, my son and I harvest the olives from the tree and we cure them in salt brine to eat them later on in, in the year. 
And olive trees, they usually only fruit um, biannually. Uh, well, if, if, if they're not growing uh, in intensive agriculture. And so last year, the yield of the tree was, was very poor, but this year we had lots of olives and we are looking forward to eating them later um, in the year. I, I kind of describe all of this and a lot more about olive trees in a small chapter in, in the book, The Mind of Plants, that I co-edited with Monica Gagliano and with John Ryan. So I, I, I won't go into a lot of detail uh, on this here, but basically I think I like olive trees because they remind me of the ties that bind plants and humans in so many ways, beyond the most obvious dependence of all living beings on oxygen and food, of course. Uh, olive trees were one of the first trees to be domesticated by humans somewhere in the Eastern Mediterranean about 6,000 years ago. And in my garden, I also have an oleaster, which is a wild olive tree right in front, in front of the domesticated planted one. And the oleaster was already there when I bought the house. And I like to think that the wild and the domesticated olive trees, they keep each other company. And, and they kind of represent the continuous memory of the house from the previous owners to the, to the present ones. And, and this origin of, of the domesticated uh, olive trees in the Eastern Mediterranean is probably why they're central to the three monotheistic religions. They are, of course, a symbol of peace after the flood that, that uh, is depicted in the book of Genesis, a, a dove, brings back a branch of an olive tree to Noah as a sign that the waters of the flood were receive, receding and that God had reconciled with his creation. And especially in the midst of the current violence, people in the Middle East, both Muslim and Jewish, would do well to, to remember the, these shared roots of their culture and the lesson of, of peace taught by, by the olive tree. The olive tree, I always find them so beautiful. I'm in the north. I'm in uh, North America, and so I don't see them very often. But they they always seem beautiful. <laughs> so yeah, I lived in yeah. California for a while, and there I did see some olive trees, and it kind of reminded me of home. What is your or your family or community's history with plants? Have you always grown up with plants or is it something that kind of came on your awareness later in life? Yeah, well, my family, uh, uh, I come from a family of, of farmers from Portugal. Uh, both my uh, maternal grandparents were farmers. They had a plot of land in, in central Portugal where they grew fruit and vegetables. And I, I still remember today the excitement of, of harvesting season that I witnessed as, as a child, uh, because we would go in every summer to, to the farm. I remember the harvesting of grapes that would then be mashed to, um, to extract uh, a liquid that would then be fermented and, and become wine. Uh, I remember the harvesting of corn that would, the husks of corn would then be piled up in a mound and that would be used for animals to sleep on in the winter and, and so on. So I have all these childhood memories of, of uh, farm life. 
and my mother tells me also that when I was when she was young, uh, my grandparents also used to um, uh, use their own um, their own olive oil from a plot of land and the trees in another plot of land. So uh, they they were also uh, olive oil um, farmers, but that was um, before my time. In any case, um, my paternal grandparents, on the other hand, they were part of a generation that left agriculture to come to the city. And my father was already born in Portugal's capital, Lisbon. And my mother uh, came from my, my maternal uh, grandparents' plot of land to Lisbon to, to study. And that's where my parents met. But this agricultural past is still very present in the family. And my parents are now retired, but they, um, they continue to go to the farm and whenever they can, they um, they spend some time there and they continue to grow uh, fruit and vegetables there um, in the family's farm. And this connection to the land, I think, was passed on to me. And I, I try to visit whenever possible with my son, uh, who loves to play there just as much as I did when, when I was a child. But I think that this history, this family history is not just, of course, it's my family's history, but it's also the family history of, of millions, if not billions of families around the world in, in the past century as subsistence farming is increasingly replaced with large agribusiness ventures that, that really rely on machinery and agrochemicals for the production of food and no longer on, on people. And, and humans are uh, moving to these sprawling urban environments, right? And so I often wonder what is going to become of our relationship to plants and to the land when our links to food production are lost and how we can connect to the most essential beings for our existence, the plants that give us oxygen and food when we are barely in touch with plants in our, in our daily lives, right? When we see them mostly as ornaments and know nothing of, of their rhythms, of their preferences, of, of their way of existing. And, and so I think these are pressing questions for our survival as humans. And in my work with plants, and I prefer to say that I work with plants and not on or about plants, right? In Because I think this is really what it is. I work with them and alongside them. And I think in this work, I, I try to reflect upon some of these uh, issues and just bring them to, to the academic and, and public discussion. How would you describe your work with plants? Um, what do you do? What do they do? And what is the goal of your work? With plants. Well, thank you. And um, I will just touch briefly upon my work with plants, but I think a good entry point is a dream that I'd like to share. And that I kind of I used to have this dream recurrently as, as a child. And um, I uh, I belong to a generation that already grew up with a keen sense of of uh, of environmental catastrophe that was deepening as, as the years passed. And I don't think this was true for my parents yet. It was certainly true to me. Uh, I remember being scared of, of, of the scale of environmental devastation that I heard in the news as I uh, when I was a child. 
And so I can only imagine how it feels for young people now as, as this situation has become so much worse. And I guess this is why we are witnessing so many climate and environmental protests led by young people. And uh, I think they're right to protest and it's just a shame that these protests are so often dismissed by, by our politicians as of the protests of daydreamers and so on, because I think they are the ones who are being realistic, uh, the, the protesters, of course. In any case, um, I was saying that I was very much aware of environmental degradation growing up. And I had this recurrent dream where I was planting trees in barren lands, in vacant lots, anywhere where I could find an empty space. And I remember thinking in my dream that if I planted enough trees, I could bring life to these devastated lands. And so it, it was it was not a very pleasant dream because I remember the anxiety of having uh, the obligation to plant all of these trees and, and to do something. And, and Portugal, where I grew up, like most Mediterranean countries routinely suffers from droughts, especially in the south of the country. And this is becoming worse with climate change. and. With drought, of course, come massive forest fires every summer that decimate the country's forests and so on. So I guess in this dream of, of planting trees everywhere, this was probably my very naive attempt at, at dealing with, with these issues. And, and I think I already intuited somehow that plants were going to be a big part of the solution to environmental problems and that we could not move away from the current environmental crisis without taking plans seriously. And so going back to my current work on, on the Amazon, I think it can be traced back to this dream because uh, the Amazon River Basin is really my dream come true. I mean, there are literally trees and other plants everywhere. Every inch of space is taken by a plant. And, and I believe that this is what fascinates me so much um, about this region, this profusion of vegetal life uh, everywhere, right? And so, as I said in my work, I study literature, cinema, and artworks about plants and animals of the Amazon and how people from Amazonia have interacted with the rainforest for centuries. And I think that uh, indigenous people in particular have a lot to teach us about the coexistence of humans and other forms of life. And I, I try to highlight this in, in my current research. Uh, for instance, I'm currently developing an online exhibition of indigenous Amazonian art that is titled Politics and Poetics of the Rainforest, Indigenous Ontologies in Contemporary Amazonian Art. And the goal is to showcase this connection between indigenous communities, plants and, animal, and animals through contemporary artistic productions. I think that um, plants like humans express themselves in, in different ways. And, and I believe that human forms of expression often uh, lend a voice to, to plants. Um, for instance, in literature about the Amazon, there are many instances uh, when plants speak and express their thoughts, their concerns, even their fear of, of being uh, destroyed and cut down and so on. And one might wonder, is this kind of an anthropocentric view of plants, uh, superimposing human thoughts and human words onto plants? 
Of course, this, this might well be the case, but I think it also helps people to realize that plants have their own aspirations, just like humans do, that they form communities, that they partake uh, in various exchanges and establish relations with one another and also with other beings. Uh, of course, this literary language of plants is still human, but I think it also has something of the plant, an imprint of the plant left in human culture. And I, I call this Im imprint uh, and this form of human plant writing phytography, uh, the articulation of plants through human cultural productions. And this is the topic of, of the monograph that I'm currently working on, and that hopefully <laughs> will be published sometime soon, uh, and that I'll be able to finish it also soon. But um, uh, I think this, this phytography, this articulation of, of plants and also of animals, of course, through human language, uh, is very clear in Amazonian cultural productions, exactly because animals and plants are so much a part of, of that region and of the lives of people uh, in that region. And so I think it, it becomes clear that this happens, but I think this happens everywhere. I mean, we do not live without plants or animals, and it's only natural that they become embedded in human modes of thinking. And um, we should do well to recognize that. Connected to that, because you had mentioned before that it's work with plants and not about, um, one of the areas of interest for the networking with plants in the Anthropocene kind of hodgepodge community um, collaboration is the topic of respect and what respect for plants looks like. Um, and so we like to ask interviewees on the podcast, um, what does having respect for plants mean to you? How is it embodied? And then also, what can humans learn from plants? Yeah, I think those are all crucial questions, not only for critical plant studies, but more broadly for uh, a human understanding of, of their place within the planet and, and how uh, we can continue inhabiting this planet um, going forward. And I think a big part of respecting plants entails understanding their alterity and realizing that their existence and their knowledge is different from uh, the human ones, but that nevertheless, they do have a form of knowledge. Uh, in the Amazon that, that I work on, indigenous communities and other traditional communities have a lot of respect for plants and also for animals because they know their strength. I mean, they see it every day. And for these communities, uh, plants can be allies, they can be enemies, they can be friends, but also foes, they can be teachers. So they recognize that plants are a force to be reckoned with and are very aware of the dangers of destroying the rainforest because they know how connected, uh, how, how plants are so connected to their own uh, lives as, as a community. Um, and I think it's not by chance that many of the countries that have enshrined the rights of nature within their legal systems are Amazonian countries. Uh, uh, the most famous case is, of course, Ecuador, the first country in the world to um, 
recognize that nature has inalienable rights in, in its constitution already in 2008. And I think it was the influence of, of the indigenous communities in these countries uh, that have made politicians and have put pressure on politicians uh, to change the legal system and to uh, recognize that nature uh, can be a subject of rights. Of course, the language of rights is not perfect, and uh, we all know that, but um, it's a tool, it's a means to try to start the conversation about how we can live alongside uh, these other beings. It's it's the language we have now, right? And I think that those indigenous and traditional communities, they know very well that uh, it is not a perfect language and it often doesn't even represent their own ways of seeing other uh, living and non-living beings. But it is what we have at the moment to uh, start and, and continue um, a discussion on uh, on plants and animals and their place within our world uh, and, and ways to uh, protect them from uh, basically extractivist rapaciousness. As to what humans can learn from plants, I believe that first of all, humans need to learn that they can learn from plants because this is not a given, right? I think uh, humans have to open themselves and, and their forms of thought to this possibility of learning uh, from plants. And only then can learning take place because learning is a process of exchange. And, uh, and in order for this exchange to take place, you have to recognize the other as, as an equal partner. And this is often not the case. So I think this is a first step. And also, of course, we have to uh, recognize that uh, plants is not obviously an homogeneous whole. I mean, their uh, forests and plants in Portugal uh, are very different from the ones from the Amazon, for instance. And what we learn from plants in different regions of the world uh, can help us learn how to live uh, in those regions of the world, more attuned to the characteristics of those regions, right? Uh, uh, a life in sync uh, with the environment in Portugal is going to look different from uh, the same balanced life in South America, in the Arctic, and so on. So I think plants, through their variety, they can teach us that, how to live uh, in the places that we live, right? And not uh, think of the world as uh, uh, one space where the same model can be reproduced ad infinitum uh, throughout uh, all the continents, right? So I think the diversity of plants in the world, which have made, has made the, pl the planet what it is, this, this plant diversity, is itself a lesson that, that we should learn from, from the vegetable world. And um, one thing that worries me a lot in thinking about respect is that as I work on the Amazon, I am seeing it disappear. Uh, I mean, human, human caused forest fires, logging, uh, often linked to the expansion of these huge uh, monoculture, uh, monocultures to cattle raising and so on. Are, are threatening the existence of the Amazon and and uh, and also of, of its peoples. 
Uh, it's estimated that in the past 50, 60 years, around 20% of, of the Amazon rainforest has disappeared. And that rate of, of disappearance is, is growing, right? And so one is left to wonder, right, what will we learn from plants when all the world's old growth forests with their accumulated millennia of knowledge are gone? And uh, we are such a recent species on the planet, we humans, uh, that surely we would we would want to learn from those who have been around for longer and, and who have more experience with existing in this planet than we do, right? And uh, I think that with my work with plants, I try to raise some of some of these questions to make people think about plants, how they live and what they know, and to reflect also upon how we can live and thrive with and alongside plants in, in this world and in this planet. Are there any current or future projects um, that you're excited about that you're working on? Yeah, I've just started working on um, another research project with a team of colleagues here in Europe. Uh, it's called Brazilian Forest Cities uh, in the Amazon. And so the idea is to look at cities that were built in the Amazon uh, in the wake of these developmentalist, extractivist dreams of uh, getting rubber out of the Amazon, mining and so on. And then for some reason, this did not work out and the cities remained and then nature slowly took over. And so we're looking at this interaction between urban life and post-urban life, already looking at the stage ahead, uh, so to speak and trying to anticipate uh, perhaps what will happen to some of the world's cities as you know, uh, demographic shifts occur and, and some cities might be abandoned. I mean, already in Europe, uh, there are several villages in rural areas that are completely abandoned and they're being um, retaken by, by nature. And so this project just started in September and I'm really excited about it because it's something that I haven't worked on, but I think it really needs to be uh, thought through what it means to uh, pass on to the next stage in our coexistence with nature where uh, human ruins are left to stand and how plants and animals then interact with those ruins and build something out of the rubble, so to speak in a post-extractivist uh, mindset and in a post-extractivist environment. That sounds fascinating. I can't, I can't wait to, to read the research that comes out of that project. Um, for sure. That's amazing. We'll provide links um, to all of the works that you've mentioned in the course of this interview, um, your work with the mind of plants, um, as a co-editor and also your own chapter in it, um, and links to Eco Amazonia and, um, yeah. Oh, it's such a pleasure talking to you and you're just such a prolific plant person. You have so much incredible work 
and um yeah it's you're really an inspiration so oh, thank you so much it was a pleasure being here and i really look forward to to hearing the podcast i mean there have been so many incredible people in the podcast already that i'm happy to be part of that group so thank you so much wonderful thank you again um if you're interested in learning more about networking with plants in the anthropocene feel free to check out our website at networkingwithplants.org or you can reach us via email at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Until next time, have a great week and go out and interact with some of your plants. Take care. Music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.